0: Romans chapter 11, just one verse, verse 36. This is the word of the living God. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we know that we are approaching the God that this text is about, that you, by your Spirit, had this written down for all ages, for generations to come, that we might know that everything is about you and for you, and it was done through you, up to and including salvation. Lord, as we dive into the next several weeks of study, studying the doctrines of grace, I will be the first to admit that I am woefully incapable of properly articulating the depths of your grace and your love and the depths of human depravity and how overwhelmingly sovereign you are, I just ask that you would bless our time, that you would help me to speak clearly as I ought, that I wouldn't share a bunch of ideas and opinions, but that we would simply ask, what did God say? What does the Bible say? That you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we wouldn't just fill our heads with information, but our hearts with worship. I pray that you bless our time together this morning. For the good of your people and the glory of Christ, it's in his name we pray, amen. Now you can be seated. As many of you know, today we are beginning a new series of study on the doctrines of grace. Some of you in here are already familiar with these doctrines. Some of you don't have a clue what I'm talking about, and that's okay. Today, we will spend our time introducing this series, introducing these five doctrines so that you can get familiarized with them only briefly. I will warn ahead of time that this is just an introduction today. There will be much more to say in the coming weeks. I'm going to do just a short bit of historical background so that you can know where is this coming from. And then we're going to lay out each of the five doctrines, giving a brief overview of what they are. And then each sermon, so that you can know what to expect over the next at least five weeks, the plan is to take one of these doctrines per week and spend some time unpacking them, asking, what does the Bible say? Now, what are the doctrines of grace? Grace. They are what is also known as the five points of Calvinism. It's quite unfortunate that in today's church landscape that the term Calvinism is is almost a curse word. It's a bad thing to say and a bad thing to be, isn't it? Those of you in here today might not have ever heard of the doctrines of grace, but you might be familiar with Calvinism. I'd be willing to wager even that you might not have heard good things either. And that's largely because there are a lot of caricatures of what the doctrines of grace are. There are a lot of what we call a straw man arguments about what the doctrines of grace are. In other words, there is a lot of miscommunication about what is meant and said and taught in these five points of Calvinism. I agree with what Dr. Steve Lawson said. He said quote, "The church has always been the strongest when the church has understood the doctrines of sovereign grace." End quote. And that's actually true historically. When you look back at church history, the, the greatest movements that you and I know of Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakening yeah, he was a staunch. Five point Calvinist. People who embrace this theology have a towering view of the supremacy and the sovereignty of God. Thus, I believe that this church, that we will grow in strength and in health when we have this same towering view of the sovereignty and supremacy of God. Before we embark on this journey to study these doctrines, I do want to say a few things for us to keep in mind. Firstly, as a personal point, I cherish these doctrines of grace. Not because they're so smart or because the merch is cool or it's trendy or any of those things, but because they're so thoroughly biblical. And they give us such a beautiful, Beautiful understanding of what God has done in the human heart. Second, you will be tempted to think at times, this is way over your head. Hear me clearly, it's not. It's written in Scripture. Scripture was written for every single, everyday believer to read and get this to understand. We will be thinking through and looking at some things that Perhaps you haven't thought of or considered before, but I would encourage you to resist the temptation to think, I don't need that theology stuff. I don't need that doctrine stuff. I just need the Bible. My friend, the Bible is full of theology and doctrine. As a matter of fact, the Bible is theological and doctrinal. You might not like it, but that is the faith once for all handed down to the saints. That is the faith that we have. Moreover, there is great reward for those who apply themselves to digging deeper into the word. You would never, those of you who are married in here and have a head on your shoulders, men, you would never turn to your wife and say, hey, I think I know enough about you. I don't need to know anymore. You wouldn't say that, now would you? Instead, you want to spend your life Getting to know her, enjoying all that makes up her personality, her flaws, and her the good things about her. You want to spend your life knowing her, and that's exactly what this is, is spending our life knowing God. Thirdly, it's possible that some of your preconceived ideas or ways of thinking about salvation will be quite challenged in this study. Many times we contrive this idea of God, of how he works in people that's not actually derived from the pages of Scripture. It might just be something that a preacher man said one time. There might be times in this study that you are prepared to throw your shoe at me. I would ask first, please don't. And I would also urge you to say... Okay, I might not like what he's saying, but is it true? Is it true? The very reason we went with the name Flatland Bible Church instead of Baptist Church or any other denominational name is simply because we want to be people of the book. We want to be Bible people. Guess what that means? That when people of the book have their preconceived ideas challenged, when the book confronts us to show us that our beliefs that we have held strongly, maybe for decades now, are wrong, we don't change what this says to match up what I think. We change what I think to match up with what the book says. That's what christians do so now let's ask the question why why on earth are we doing this why on a sunday morning would we gather together to study the doctrines of grace that are going to require that i think deeply and might even shake up my sunday school theology why very simply what we just read For the glory of God. The doctrines of grace help us to have this towering view of God that leads to us giving him the glory that he rightly deserves. In that, my friends, do you understand what this means when Paul wrote from him, through him and to him are all things? Do you know what is considered, what is included in all things? Salvation. It is for God. It is for His glory. Ultimately, salvation is not just a way for you to avoid going to hell. Salvation is God's guaranteeing of His own glory for all of eternity. That is why we study these things. When we study, we learn. You can only go as high in the worship of God as you are deep in the knowledge of God. This is why we study, learn, and grow. It's not to fill our minds with more information or statistics or cool little quips. It's to fill our hearts with worship. The doctrines of grace communicate to us that the Lord is absolutely sovereign over every last realm of His creation And that means over salvation as well. The doctrines of grace help us to understand our own salvation. How is it that we came to saving faith when we know so many people who don't believe? Why is that? Why is it that perhaps members of your own family or your friends or your co-workers, why do you believe and they don't? Did you just make a better choice than they did? Is it like kind of like picking stock options? You just need to be smarter and pick the right ones. Is that how this works? Or is there a deeper reason why you believe and others don't? With that in mind, what are the doctrines of grace? As we study in this series, we're going to follow the well-known acronym TULIP. That's TULIP like the flower. Now, if you ever get mad at me, just remember we're talking about tulips here and you can't be mad at flowers now, can you? Tulip, it's an acronym. For those of you taking notes, tulip stands for total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. And the P, is perseverance of the saints. Now, I want to say immediately that though this is a handy acronym, some of the terms that the letters are standing for, the the actual phrasing doesn't actually capture what we mean or what Scripture is teaching. So we will use the acronym just so that we are aligned with the historical doctrine, but we will also modify our understanding of what's being said as we go for the sake of being consistent with scripture. So speaking of historical doctrine, where does this come from anyway? Who thought up this system of understanding salvation? I've never picked up my Bible and read anything about tulips in there. You would be right, I hope. And that's fair enough. The doctrines of grace, these five points of what we call Calvinism, though they bear the name of John Calvin, they were not actually developed by John Calvin. If you think back to the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, John Calvin was also one of the early first reformers of that time. And so for a lot of reasons, they have attributed this s- system of understanding salvation to him, but believe it or not, he was not holed up in a room somewhere saying, how can I make a bunch of Baptists mad one day? He was just studying the scriptures, and he wrote a systematic theology known as the Institutes of the Christian Religion. We have systematic theologies aplenty these days. You could go to uh, most Christian stores, I won't say all, but you can go to most Christian stores or go online and you can purchase you a systematic theology that is essentially just boiling down what does the Bible teach about different topics. And so that's what the Institutes of the Christian religion was. And so the people who followed John Calvin, guess what they were called? Calvinists. Because they followed Calvin's teaching. Now, you might have a problem with that terminology. That's fine. I'm not here to argue for terminology. I could care less if you ever embrace that moniker. That's not what's most important here. But at that time, you have to keep in mind that this was the Protestant Reformation. There were believers who were trying to uh, go back to what Scripture says because the Roman Catholic Church, as it does still today, had so distorted the truth but they were running aggressively the other direction. And so sometimes people would call themselves by the teaching of the reformer that they were following, but they would that never supersedes Christian. We are all first and foremost a Christian. In the 1600s, there was a group of people called the Arminians, and believe it or not, they were following someone by the name of uh, Jacob Arminius. His last name was Arminius, and so they called themselves the Arminians. They developed these five points in protest to what the reformers were saying. And so, in response to these five points, the Calvinists and other Christians and theologians and scholars gathered together It's what was known as the Synod of Dort, and they wrote five points points in response to those. And that, they are known as the canons of Dort. And from the canons of Dort, those five points, that is what eventually would become the five points of what we call Calvinism. That happened in 1618 and 1619. The TULIP acronym didn't come to be for many centuries later. And that was just a fancy way or a convenient way of of you know kind of synthesizing the truths of the canons of Dort. So that's a whole lot of history that you could go study if you would like to one day and I would encourage you to do so because it's very good for us to know what have Christians throughout history believed and how has this book shaped culture, Christian culture. It's a very good thing to study church history. So I say all of that to say once again that John Calvin didn't sit in a room one day and just cook up these five points of Calvinism. They were developed over centuries even of faithful men studying Scripture and asking, how is it that sinful man can be saved? How is he saved? How is he kept saved? And how is it that God guarantees that this person is going to be in attendance at the marriage supper of the Lamb? Now think about that for a moment. Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. The bride is presented to the bridegroom, to Christ. We are finally united and the scriptures say that we, were, we are given, we are clothed in fine linen, bright and pure well, think about that for a moment. Think about yourself. Are you pure? Are all of your thoughts and intentions always pure? You've never had an errant thought. You've never lied. You've never cussed. You've never gotten angry. You've never gotten impatient at, on the loop. You've always loved the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, soul, and strength for every millisecond of every day. I would would be willing to wager if you're an honest individual, you would say, no, actually, I haven't done that. Well, then how is it then that you're going to be you with your finickiness and your frailty and your in and out and up and down and your broken promises and your I'm going to wake up at 6 a.m. And then you snooze until 630. You mean to tell me that that same will and constitution that you have is going to last all of your life so that you are guaranteed to go to heaven. I don't think so, my friend. And that's what the doctrines of grace help us to see and to understand because then the question arises, well, then how can anyone have assurance of salvation? Is it possible that I lose my salvation and I'm not actually going to be there at the marriage supper of the Lamb Because this whole show depends on me. And I know how unable I am to be just completely, consistently holy and pure. And so as we study, we will see, and I hope, draw great comfort in knowing what God has done and what he does. So without further ado, let's begin working through this acronym, the T. For total depravity. And again, this is just a brief flyover. The T, total depravity. Man is totally depraved. And as you think about that statement, that might be immediately assaulting to your ears because you might be thinking, no, I know myself. I'm not totally depraved. I'm not as sinful as I could possibly be. There are sins that I think about committing that I don't actually commit. So I'm not truly totally depraved. And that's a good question. And that's a very fair point. But again, as I said, the intention here is not to imply that each individual is as maximally wicked and sinful as you are able to be. No, but the intention is to communicate That man is so radically affected by sin that he is totally unable and unwilling to come to God on his own because of his depravity. It's referring to loving sin so much. And sin being so ingrained into our nature that it makes us Incapable of coming to God, listen, because we are unwilling to come to God. Thus, some theologians opt for calling it total inability instead of total depravity. Man cannot come to God without God first doing a work in that individual's heart because that person loves sin. That is a statement that is absolutely true of every human being that has ever lived. Listen, and all of us in here as well. That is the true truth about us. I was in the DFW area for a conference this past Thursday and Friday. Thursday night, we were at dinner. Someone I was with was trying to share the gospel with our waitress, and he asked her, if you were to die tonight, would you be in heaven or hell? And she says, well, you know, I, I think that I would go to heaven. I haven't been that bad. He asks, what do you mean? Well, you know, I, he asked her, have you ever told a lie? She says, well, yeah, you know, I've, I've told a lie, but I haven't done anything really bad. Do you understand what she's saying there? And I think that that is indicative of how a lot of people think about heaven. If we were to ask, do you think that you're going to heaven or hell when you die? If you were to die today, where would you be? And if you're not in Christ today, you would likely answer something similar. Well, you know, I, I, I I'm not that bad, you know. I there there's it's like Josh was talking about this morning. There there are people who are worse than me. Okay. You know, I I might mess up from time to time. You know, I've, I've lost my temper here and there. But overall, I'm a pretty good guy. I vote Republican. I go to work. I'm never late. I pay my taxes. I'm a homeowner. I take care of my family. I've never beat my wife. Isn't that all it takes? You know what we're doing is we are standing in the seat of God. We are saying, I determine how I get there. I determine who gets in. I determine how someone gets in. Now listen, if that's hard for you to imagine, have you ever, and you don't have to raise your hand because if you were raising your hand, all of our hands would be raised, but have you ever maybe seen something on the news or heard a, a story of something really bad, some real terrible crime Someone murdered someone in a really heinous way, or someone stole, your house gets broken into, and they steal from you, rummage through all of your stuff. And you think to yourself, I hope that person gets what's coming to them. You know what you would think too? That's the kind of person who goes to hell, not me. I wash my car, I take care of my lawn, I'm a hard worker. I'm nice to people. I hold doors open. But is that what it takes to get to heaven? That statement is really telling of the condition of the heart. I'm not that bad. We'll readily put everyone else in hell and never think for a moment that that's where I could go. We in our fallen state, we don't readily grasp the reality of the wrath of God that we are storing up for ourselves. This doctrine states that every single human being is completely ruined by sin, whether the individual recognizes it or not. Now, how can that be, Matt? There are nice people in the world that aren't Christians. And they uh, there's Bill Gates, he gives a lot of money. He's a philanthropist. How can that person be totally ruined by sin? Turn to Romans 3 with me. You asked great questions already. I appreciate it. Romans chapter 3. For the sake of time, I'm going to go ahead and begin reading. Paul here is quoting from the Psalms, starting in verse 9. He says, We have already charged that all, Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Verse 10: As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. Here's a major indictment. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that, listen carefully, every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. I want you to really catch that take that home and read through that Paul is writing here scripture under the authority of an inspiration of the holy spirit and you know what he does is he pulls in other scripture that was written under the authority and inspiration of the holy spirit and he is doing so to show that the whole counsel of god tells us that mankind is ruined by sin we're ruined If you want to get mad, don't get mad at me, get mad at Adam and Eve. Because ever since then, sin entered into the world and we all died in Adam. You and I are born with a sinful nature, but not only do we have a nature, we also sin. So we compound the issue, sin upon sin upon sin. And listen to the clear language that he's using. There's no wiggle room in no one. There's no wiggle room in none. There's no wiggle room in the whole world. You hear that? Other translations would say none or no one, but either way, the whole point is to say everybody. Every last person. That means even the nice, friendly, polite Republican, voting, tax paying, gun toting American, that all of us outside of Christ are dead in sin. Look at verse 23, solidifies it even further. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And here it is, my friends, you and I, the reason why this is hard for us to believe is because we compare ourselves by ourselves. We look at the landscape of humanity and we say, I'm better than him, I'm better than him, I'm better than him. That's not the point. The point is, are you as good and perfect and holy and blameless all the time as God is? If you're not, that's sin. That means one lie, one stolen piece of bubble gum, so much as one stolen stapler from work so much as a post-it, so much as littering, going over the speed limit, breaking the law, any little sin. You know why? Because God's perfect, because he's holy, and he is the standard, not you and I. Now that speaks to the ruined state of the sinner, but can't the sinner one day wise up and seek for God? I mean, that's what happened to me, right? Like, we, I just decided one day I want to make better choices with my life. So I pulled myself up by the bootstraps and I said, I'm going to get my life together. I'm going to make the Lord change me. Is that what happened? I don't know. Let's see. Paul, tell us. Verse 11 No one seeks for God. How many people? No one. He goes on to say in chapter eight, verses seven and eight, that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. indeed, it can not. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There he shuts the door to any possibility of man out of his own desire, out of his own thinking and so-called free will, coming to God on his own. It's not possible. Paul says that he doesn't because he can't, and he can't because he won't. He can't obey because he doesn't want to obey. Why? Because he loves his sin. We love it so much. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's what we do. So then let's think about this. How can it be that the scriptures clearly tell us that no one does good and no one seeks for God? And here we all are in this morning in the midst of a group who does good and seeks for God. How can that be? Well, the answer to that question begins by looking at the U in our acronym, U, unconditional election. This doctrine is that scripture teaches us that God chose a people for himself without Regard to anything in that person in eternity past. When was eternity past? Before Genesis 1.1. That was a long time ago, by the way. It was before the creation of anything. God chose for himself a people. Well, where do we get this idea from? That sounds crazy. Turn to Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. Mind you, this is in the greeting, the opening of Paul's letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Hallelujah, everybody's with Paul right there. I love blessings. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him. When? Before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God's sovereignty without regard to the creature is displayed all over Ephesians 1. Think about that. Again, Paul's opening greeting Paul wasn't hiding this precious truth deep in the letter where everyone would have fallen asleep by now, so they're not going to pay attention. He puts it on headline news. This is at the very front when people are going to be paying the most attention. And he says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, I know that some of you like to joke about how old you feel in the morning and your back hurts and your knees are creaking, but was anybody here at the foundation of the world? Anyone? So you're not that old now, are you? No, we weren't there. We weren't there. Our parents weren't born. Our house wasn't made. The car we drive wasn't even thought of. This was before the foundation of the world. He the Father chose us in Him, Christ, before creation. All that Paul mentions here is God the Father making a choice of a people before creation was brought about and His only consideration is not the merit of the individual. It's not, well, you know, so-and-so, I looked down the timeline of time and I saw that Matt Cavasso's. whenever he heard the gospel, was going to go to the front at the altar call. And so I decided to save that man. That's not what happened. That's not what Paul said, is it? Paul said that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And according to what? How did God make this decision? Look at the end of verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Not according to the merit of the person. Not according to the choosing of the individual. After all, he uses the term adoption. And you know that the parents choose the child, don't they? He uses that Language on purpose. He's not just saying, well, what word can I put in here? Let me just put adoption. Let me just use predestination. I don't know. That'll work. That won't cause any controversy in church history. No, he's choosing his words intentionally. Think of Israel. God chose Israel. Think of the prophets. God chose the prophets. Think of the twelve. God chose the twelve. But now all of a sudden, all of us, we're the ones, we're the deciding factor. I don't think so. Instead, Ephesians 1 tells us that God did it this way in love. There's an old quote from an old Puritan that says, the way that we know that God will never stop loving us, is that he never began, because he loved us from eternity past. He elected these people according to his own goodwill based on the merits, the righteousness, and the goodness, not of you, but of Christ. That leads us to the L, limited atonement, L for limited atonement. This is referring to Christ's work on the cross. One may ask, for whom did Christ die for when he died on the cross? Did he die for everyone in the world throughout history? Or did he pay for the sins or atone for the sins of a specific people. Limited atonement would say that he atoned for the sins of specific individuals. When Christ died, he died for specific people. Now, limited atonement might sound like we mean something other than what we mean, like God is limited in some way, but that's not actually what's meant. What's meant is that what some theologians call definite atonement or particular redemption that there is a particular people who are redeemed again what is meant either way is that when Christ Jesus went to the cross he was not paying for the debts of an indiscriminate indiscernible amount of people he wasn't paying for all of the sins of everyone who would ever commit them you know why because that leads us to universalism that would mean that everybody on the planet going to be saved. That would also mean that some people, or it could mean that Christ died for some people who will not believe in him. So Christ died in vain for that person. He spilled blood for someone who's not going to take advantage of it and be cleansed by it. Now, I know this is very difficult. Let's look at the biblical support, and you don't have to turn. I'm just going to read these quickly. In Matthew chapter 1, when the angel comes to Joseph to tell him not to leave Mary, the angel says that she, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save, listen, his people from their sins. That is a specific people with specific sins, not random. Consider John chapter 10, the section about the good shepherd. Verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14 and 15, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. So he lays down for the sheep. And the sheep know him. These are specific sheep. These are not just anybody. As a matter of fact, at the judgment of the world, we are told that not everyone is sheep. There are sheep and there are what? Goats. So the goats are people who are unbelievers, who are not saved, who are not Christ's. The sheep are those for whom Christ is. Died. How about Ephesians 5.25? Husbands, love your wives. Listen to that. Love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You want to know the quickest way to ruin a marriage? Is husbands love all wives. Husbands, love Any wives. That's not what happens, now is it? You are covenanted to a specific woman. Her. That is your wife. And it's the same with Christ. He died for a specific people. A specific people make up his bride. Christ died for a specific people. And all who Christ died for will be saved. Not a single drop of his blood will have been spilled In vain, I, irresistible grace. Irresistible grace teaches us that those who God has elected, those who Christ spilled his blood for, that God will bring them to saving faith, even though they are totally unable to come to him on their own. He draws them. He causes a change in the heart, such that they are now willing and able to respond positively to the message of the gospel. This is sometimes called effectual grace, meaning that God's grace is effectual. It has its intended purpose in the people of God. It does what it's supposed to do. This doctrine can be summed up really well in what Jesus said in John six thirty seven: All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me. I will never cast out. Do you understand? Wrap your mind around this. This is unbelievable. In eternity past, before creation, God the Father purposed to give a specific people to his Son. They came up with a plan, knowing that sin was going to come into the world, and this God the Father was not going to give his Son a sinful people. So they came up with this plan. Christ is going to be given for his bride. He's going to spill his blood. He's going to bear their sins so that his bride, the people that the Father has given to the Son, so that they can be pure, washed, and holy, and blameless. God gave the Son a people. And if you're in Christ, you are part of that people. You are part of the people that the Father gave to the Son in eternity past. Are you kidding? That's amazing. And so... Those that the Father gave to the Son will be given to the Son. They will come. God will overcome our depravity, our ruined state of sin. And I don't know about you, but I say a big hallelujah for that. Hallelujah. Overcome my sin, please. Overcome my running and my rebellion, so how does God ensure that his elect will come to saving faith if they can't? If they are ruined by sin and they won't because they can't and they can't because they won't? He gives them eyes to see and ears to hear. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Listen, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believe. Not everybody, but as many as were appointed. Luke gives us a wonderful example of this down in Acts 16, verse 14. They're on this missionary journey. They go down to this riverside. They're having this conversation with this group of women who are at this riverside. And listen, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul the Lord opened her heart. What does that imply about the heart before God did that? That it was not open. It was closed. And that is depravity, my friends. The heart is closed to the message of the gospel. It's a heart of stone. And the message of the gospel falls off. It doesn't take root. It doesn't plant until the Lord opens the heart. And he tills the soil of the heart and it's ready now to receive the seed of the word of the gospel in the heart. Only one heard at that time, only Lydia. Why? Because it was only Lydia's heart that the Lord had opened. It wasn't that Lydia was smarter. It wasn't that Lydia made a better choice. It wasn't that these people aren't very spiritual and I'm more spiritual. It wasn't anything in Lydia. It was God opening her heart. Think about it. This is exactly what happened to you. There were times in your life where you heard the gospel and it was no effect to you. Pfft, I don't need that. I don't need that God stuff. I don't need, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm fine. I'm doing pretty good on my own. You know what that is? A hard heart. You know what that is? It's a heart of stone. And it's that way because of sin. Because of a love for sin. Until one day, the Lord opened your heart, and you saw Christ. And you heard the message of the gospel, the word of truth. And you saw Christ Jesus. And you saw it was your sin laid upon him on the cross. You saw that when his side was pierced, when he was broken, that it was for you. You saw that it was your sin that sent him there. And it was your sin that held him there until it was all accomplished. Until the Father's wrath meant for you was entirely extinguished. In his own beloved Son, you saw it. And if you haven't, I pray you do. Because there's nothing more beautiful to see than the grace of God shown to ruined sinners through Christ. That's the work of God. Perseverance of the saints. Last letter. Because up to now, we've seen the overwhelming sovereignty of God in bringing us to saving faith, but what about the rest of your life? After all, if I'm totally depraved, if I have depravity, if I have a sinful nature, how am I guaranteed to be saved? What if I wake up tomorrow and I don't believe God anymore? I love the letter P here. This doctrine simply means that those who are saved, they will persevere until the end. Once again, many theologians offer up a different way of phrasing this and saying that the P isn't perseverance, but the preservation of the saints. I think one of the most clear texts of how this is accomplished is found in Philippians chapter 2. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, listen, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's perseverance. You persevere by working out your salvation. You don't just say, well, I prayed a prayer once. I'm good. Who cares about what the rest of the book says? I don't really need to take this very seriously. It was written by men. So many men had an impact in this book. Who knows what God really meant to say? No. No. The spirit of God is alive inside of you. He is the spirit of truth and he leads you into all truth. And so you look at this book and you read it and you say, I need to do that. Lord, please help me to do that. Or Lord, I'm not doing that. Please help me to stop doing that. That's the perseverance of the saints. Verse 13, though. For it is God who works in you. Both to will, and to work for his good pleasure. You know what that means? That's the, pers- that's the preservation of the saints, that you will continue repenting of your sins because he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. Now, what about people who fall away from the faith? Well, they didn't persevere because God did not preserve them because they did not belong to him. We have a popular phrase today called deconstruction. I'm deconstructing my faith. You know what the Bible calls that is apostasy, that you're turning your back on the Lord God, which only indicates that you never belonged to Him. Jesus said, "On that day, many will come to me saying, "Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not cast out demons in your name? You know what that is? Lord, Lord, I was a good person. I did a lot of good stuff. I tithed. I, I, I was a good guy. I held the door open for old ladies. I helped people cross the street. What will Jesus say? Depart from me, for I never knew you. Why did Jesus never know them? Because they didn't belong to him. Do you feel the weight of that? on that last day, you will either stand before the Lord as his or as have only been pretending to be his. Which one are you this morning? Do you belong to him? Are you pressing on in faith because of the work God is doing in your heart? Or are you thinking foolishly? To make it to that last day and stand before the king of kings, the immortal one, and say, I'm good enough, let me in. Which is it for you? I pray that what you're doing is your understanding that I am ruined by sin. And if, if not for God's choosing of me, Christ's blood would have no effect on me. I wouldn't be cleansed. I would still be guilty. I would still owe him a death because of my sin. But because he drew me to himself and opened my heart and opened my eyes, I see him, and he's beautiful and lovely. And the more I see, the more that I want. Which one is it for you today? As we close, I would like to reiterate that this was just a brief flyover of these doctrines. There is so much yet to say about each one individually and how they all play out in harmony and unity. But I hope that you can begin to see that Scripture has a lot to say about the sovereignty of God and salvation. It is true that we are all individually ruined by our sinning and our sinfulness to the effect that we cannot come to or please God Yet, because of God's great love and grace, he has chosen for himself an undeserving people to belong to him. He gave these people to his son, and his son came to die for and bear the sins of his people. And God ensures himself that these people will be saved by giving them a new heart that sees and loves Christ and he seals them by his Holy Spirit throughout this life so that they can grow in holiness until the day that he calls them home to be with him forever. And you know what? This is all unto the glory of God. To this we say amen and all glory be to God alone, for salvation is of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I confess that you are sovereign. You alone are good. You alone are righteous and holy. And if not for your working to choose some, none would be saved. For we love our sin more than you. Please help us, Lord, to grow in the knowledge of God so that we can worship you more, so that we can be more holy and pure and righteous before you, so that Christ can get the reward he deserves for laying down his life for his people. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't run from this, but that we would embrace it, knowing that these doctrines speak of the Most High God in His glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.